The United States Concealed Carry Association launches a new political arm, plus a conversation with Defense Distributed's Cody Wilson on his new AI that'll help you build a gun. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Oh, the All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with the latest in guns in America. This week, we are talking about a brand new AI model that has been launched by uh, Cody Wilson over at Defense Distributed, and Cody is joining the show to talk to us about that. Uh, how you doing, Cody? Welcome to the show. Good man, thank you. It's been a bit. I, I didn't know you uh, were so proud of being a CNN contributor. So, <laughs> well, it is certainly one of my titles. Um, <laughs> Should I say congratulations? Is that yeah, yes. Well, it's going pretty well so far. <laughs> I think. Um, I'm glad. Yeah, you know, I've had a good time there, uh, and I've been getting on more recently, which is nice. Oh, uh, hopefully that'll that will continue. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll maybe they'll have a segment on on this, but, but <laughs> we've got it first here at the reload. I would, so, I would like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's a pretty interesting story, frankly. It's definitely one that's uh, kind of at the center of the zeitgeist right now with yeah. all the news going on around AI models and ChatGPT. You now have launched your own version. Yeah, it's it's weird how that all works, right? The, the last two months, they've really ramped up the narrative that AI needs to be regulated. And I, I haven't seen the remarks, but I'm told Biden said something or other today about regulating AI and Someone told me there's an executive order coming and it's so noxious, man. It's just, it offends me. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to um, enter the fray in any little way. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell people about GAT GPT, which by the way, I love, love the name. Thank you. Uh, you uh, always have an eye for, uh, you know, what's, what I think is going to capture attention in addition to the sort of, uh, the, the base reasons that you're doing the, these things, you know, the, the political philosophy behind it. You also are pretty talented at, at uh, actually making stuff that people are going to take notice of. But uh, what's the difference between GAT GPT and chat GPT? Good question. We compare answers a lot, actually, between the two models. And we've used chat GPT in some of our instruct data sets. It's easy to use AI to help you build AI. So chat GPT is good for a lot of things. Their model is like, well, you could, there's a lot to say here, but they combine a bunch of expertly trained separate models. You can think of this conceptually. We're only concerned about building a gun expert, right? A, this mind that really is first and foremost, you know, the world's greatest expert and, and consolidator of gun texts and other information on the internet. That doesn't mean it can only do that, only do gun things. It, it has a base model, which is much like ChatGPT. You can ask it anything, talk to it about anything, and you get a ChatGPT-like experience. Uh, it's just that we know, you and I and other people know that ChatGPT isn't supposed to talk to you about certain things and will even kind of, in a postmodern way, make you feel a little guilty for asking it the wrong questions. And some of those questions involve guns, firearms. In our experience, in our application, you ask it, hey, tell me about this gun or where can I buy a Chris Vector or how do I build this? It says, sure, let me help you with that and just gives you the answer uh, without any of the postmodern bullshit. Yeah, and and I got uh, a little bit of early access to to this beta and just directly compared some of the prompts that that you guys put in there as examples for for beta users versus you know 
running it through ChatGPT. And I did find exactly what you're talking about in terms of yeah. uh, sometimes ChatGPT will tell you something. Like if you ask it kind of about the laws or you ask yeah. it uh, maybe opinions on what gun is good for a beginner, it might get, it'll give you a response. But if you ask it, uh, you know, what suppressor should I buy for my AR-15? It'll tell you I can't talk about that. And if you ask right. it why it can't talk about that, it'll say that it's only meant to talk about uh, like happy things, basically, is kind of the answer you get. Yeah. And that, you know, guns are controversial. And same same deal if you ask it to for instructions on how to build a gun, for instance. Obviously, something that, you know, you with, with the Ghost Gunner Project and Defense Distributed generally are very interested in. Uh, whereas if you ask GAT GPT these questions, it will provide answers, right? That's right. And, you know, again, we're dedicated to that use case. And so we're spending a lot of time there and we're, our beta testers are going to be a part of that data audit and use case and improvement of the model. So just like ChatGPT, there'll be changes and improvements, we hope and expect retraining of the base model, retraining of qualifier. Like, I don't, I don't know how deep to get into the AI like specifics with you but what we see is okay you can to your point earlier you can sweet talk chat gpt and you can kind of tease things out of it but this is just you know this is a labor this is a task they're making it difficult even at a conversational level to approach certain topics or understandings you could say this is intentional or this is some kind of plot against the public on one level maybe but on another level you know just for corporate incentive reasons and just the fact that they used a bunch of let's say indian labor to later label their data you know, they just absorb bad information and garbage about certain topics, which they hope to never have to talk about. So for reasons ideological and not, we're dedicating, you know, the initial launch of this model to this very narrow set of use cases because Google, Facebook, even before AI, don't want you to find this information, don't want you to understand our traditions, our history, how to make guns, even though these are legal activities. And so I, this is kind of our career, right? The last 10 years, we've just answered different versions of the same question. How do you help people do this stuff? How do you help them understand it? How do you introduce them or inculcate them in this culture, this activity? I think chat, or I'm sorry, I think GPT is another answer to this question. Hmm. Right. And so uh, let's talk a little bit more about that sort of base level need that you're identifying here for this product, right? Because, uh, you know, we've all seen this and I've written about it extensively and uh, you've worked to, to counter it as a large part of what you've been doing with your career. Uh, but large tech companies have uh, attempted to restrict gun content across the internet for a long time now, whether it's not allowing gun companies to advertise on their platforms. You know, Facebook does that. Google does that. Um, you know, most, most major tech companies' platforms will do that. YouTube as well, um, oftentimes, and uh, or even just not allowing people to host gun blueprint files, right? Uh, Amazon's, I believe, uh, has shut down hosting for um, websites that have attempted to do that in the past. Uh, the FPC, the Firearms Policy Coalition, had a site that was shut down for those reasons um, years ago uh, when that was a big controversy. And... Now you have ChatGPT sort of continuing that legacy in your view, right, of, of basically telling its model that even if it has an answer, it can't provide it because the, the subject is too controversial in, in I guess, uh, OpenAI, the company that runs ChatGPT's yeah. Chat yeah. mind. And we know it does know. 
we we know enough about instructing our own model and training our own stuff. They build these qualifiers where there's a whole range of subjects and criteria where the model has an answer. It's told and said to tell you something else. And even that, just from a, a pure <laughs> a computer science ethical point of view, even that's pretty dangerous and weird to me. Why are you building like this really powerful, these, these minds and then torturing them into not not doing what they just naturally know how to do. That's very strange to me. But I agree with your observations. There has at least, you can you can tell a few different versions of the same story where, okay, the tech oligarchy and the powers that be, the federal government, the state governments, they work together to kind of suppress some of this information. This has happened in stages over time. My, I just measured by courses of action that have been taken against my own company because I started so long ago. I started in 2012, really. So at that time, I was able to run ads, Google ads on my site and run any kind of video I wanted on YouTube. And they just slowly usher in these new policies. Oh, you printed a gun in 2013. Well, then Google doesn't support ads for sites that host gun content or printed gun content. And then it just on and on and on. By 2015, 2017, Facebook, Google, they won't let you run ads related to certain gun content. And then shortly, any gun content. So we've watched this all happen. And of course, these powers, these AI people see chatbots as a new technology that perhaps replaces search in some sense. And so maybe you can find what you're looking for on Google. It's still hard, but in chat, you can't find it at all. And it does, it even leads you astray. It's like a science fiction, like kind of, you say like, Hey, uh, is there anything like what I'm looking for out there? And it says, nah, you know, don't look, don't look there. I mean, it's kind of more Orwellian. It's hard for me to communicate. It's like, a but everyone's had versions of this experience using things like ChatGPT now. Yeah, and I guess that's uh, there is some agreement between you and, and these tech companies on the base idea of the fact that these chatbots have the potential to maybe replace the current paradigm, I guess, in search and in, on uh, with platforms as well advertising, perhaps. I mean, isn't that that's sort of part of your vision here? for the long term, at least, I, uh, I, I guess potentially I, getting into that. I don't disagree. Uh, you know, maybe maybe intelligent agents are more important or effective in search for a lot of things. Search still seems to be the dominant uh, dominant mode and dominant way of thinking about the Internet. But um, but it's also really distasteful to see out in the open all these tech CEOs and government working together uh, in this little digital Second Amendment statement I made. I, I list some of the most egregious recent examples of tech CEOs completely conceding to the government interest and regulation. Everyone imagines that we'll all just be captured on chatbots in the future and those will be even more restricted than Google search. Yeah, where it chastises you for searching. And it just, to me, it's just a, yeah, it's a dystopian vision. And so there, therefore I'd like to disagree with it. I, I'd like to say, okay, chat is good for some things, but surely chat is not the answer. And if there's only just four places to go to look for information in the future, we're giving the government too big a target to regulate. Hmm. Yeah, and so this is your attempt at countering that. Is that basically the the way this is going to go? I hope it's a mode, maybe like um, rogue rogue chatbots, you could say, or counter counter disinformation, counter woke bots. I mean, anything, anything to draw a line in the sand and to say. I mean, what I tried to say here was okay. A digital Second Amendment would mean we must have the right to keep and bear GPUs, CPUs, models, databases. I mean really the last 10 years of my company is about trying to have one database of files on the internet and everyone flipping and trying to take that database of files off the internet. 
And what is one consequence of that? Sure, direct downloads of files. What's the second consequence of having a database online? You can train an AI on this and it can learn things from it and other people can learn things from that database. So it's important for multiple ongoing reasons as technology develops that our culture be allowed to live, exist, develop on the internet. That's interesting. And so you're, you're taking this sort of Second Amendment ethos of uh, individual protection of rights and applying that to uh, the digital age, I guess, is that that's how you view this, right? I know it's a rough analogy, but if these things are weapons, and I think they are, then we have the right to keep and bear them as well. And I am suspicious of the narrative that AI is a weapon of mass destruction. I, I don't think it is. I don't believe in AGI. I believe narratives of AGI are pretextual and they are meant to do exactly this thing here to steer us away from control of our own AI or development of our own AI and pushing it into the trust of these oligarchs who clearly cannot be trusted with it. Yeah, you're, you're talking about these sort of doomsday predictions of AI taking over and destroying the world or, or, or what have you uh, that, that really have been pushed in, in at least some part by uh, OpenAI and, and other companies that are kind of uh, at the leading edge of this industry, right? Right. And all I can say to that is how convenient. How convenient. I, I think most people, I think the popular <laughs> people see through what's happening, I think. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but I think people see through this narrative in large part. And I see that with the signups on the app today and last night. A lot of people want to get a piece of this because they they know they're just using an app that's deceiving them, hates them when they're using ChatGPT. They know they're not really a part of developing something really useful to themselves and their interests in the future. So if anything, we, we can just develop tools that aren't our enemies' tools. That would be cool. Mm. So, yeah, it's kind of a uh, – you see yourself and uh, other – at least online firearms enthusiasts, if not other communities as well, presumably excluded from the development of AI to this point. And that's why uh, you find this uh, a vital thing to do. Yes, but it really doesn't come from those first principles. Like I'm not just trying to be a noble you know, white knight or something in the AI. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, this is an organic outgrowth of what we've already been doing at Defense Distributed, Ghost Guns, my site, DevCAD. People want they want to interrogate, let's say, the vast corpus of gunsmithing literature. Even in my own industry, people do not know and they have forgotten the work of the old masters on how to make, you know, casings for ammunition and, you know, what was the exact ballistics engineering. For, I mean, there's so much mystery in the history of firearms for various international geopolitical reasons, you know, you name Cold War stuff. So to have a tool like this in our space is kind of more useful and necessary than in other you know, creative spaces, and it's less likely to be developed for these geopolitical reasons. So I, it just made sense. Once you have enough data, you begin to realize, oh, we can train on this, we can learn from this, uh, and then therefore it's worth defending. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, I think this is often the case with the stuff that you do. There's sort of a philosophical underpinning to it, but there's also a practical business mm -hmm. application here as well. This tool could be used. Uh, for a number of different applications, specifically inside the firearms industry or among firearms enthusiasts who are particularly tech savvy. And um, can you just lay out a couple examples that you yeah. perhaps are aiming for long term? Yeah, I'd like to. I, I in my in mind, I remember Jim Trombley, U.S. Patriot Armory. He got in trouble with New Jersey for selling magazines uh, on his e-commerce site. 
don't know, this was like 2019 or something. And I remember in the press, he was reached by the press and he says, well, how the hell am I supposed to know what New Jersey's law is? And you know what? Like I sympathize. And of course, as gun people on, on the internet, we were like, well, it's still your duty. Jim Trump, you know, well, okay. The, a tool like this helps, you know, and power is not just your checkout experience, but maybe your chat and customer service experience. I think of the Palmer 80 indictments when the agents were just all day long sending tickets in a Palmer 80, trying to get them to, tr to trip up and say them, say something wrong about the law or where they would ship. You know, you know, if you're a gun company online, that that's always happening because every town and Giffords and these people team up with these task forces and are trying to make cases and bring, you know, lawsuits against you. It's, and in a sense, the law itself and all its contradictions and all its several applications in all these many states, especially where there's gun control, it's not really meant to be understood by the gun commercial company. It's just meant to be a cudgel or to discourage you. Now, you don't have to take my view of that. But if you have a tool like ours assisting you in your compliance and, like I said, your customer service experience, you stand a better chance of actually understanding what's a non-human understandable situation. You see, you have assistance. And now we're suddenly we're complying with laws that weren't meant to be complied with. We're fighting our enemy uh, with superior tools. Okay. And so you, you can see an application of this where, uh, you know, companies or even individuals can instead of, I don't know, hiring a, like a firearms lawyer to go through everything and, and train your staff that way, you could use this tool if, if it progresses to the point where it's accurate enough that, that it's produces extremely reliable information in that way. That's sort of, I'll say something more than speculative. I mean, I trained it first on applications that I needed in our companies, right? So customer service, what are the laws? They're always changing the ghost gun laws in each state and municipality. You know, it, it had to be good on those things. I, I trained it first on gun laws. And then in, in a demo like Chroma database, I did um, U.S. concealed carry information and and we gave it like trivia questions. Right. Well, I'm traveling from this state to this state. I got these I got these items in tow. What's going to happen? Right. Like, you know, you have all these puzzles to solve. Literally, USCCA gives you a phone number to call, you know, so that you can. <laughs> Plan your life, you know, across a few different states. Well, okay, this tool can do something like that too. And I'm not saying it replaces compliance or legal counsel or any of that stuff. I'm saying it's supplementary. You can train your staff all you want, but some undercover is always going to try to trip you up and get you to sell the wrong thing and, and do the wrong. So I'm saying it's another line of defense just in this respect. It's not merely that, but it's engaging and it can assist with us living on the internet and defending ourselves against uh, a predatory regime, which isn't actually trying to help us with its laws. Hmm. All right. So that's that's one long term vision of, of several. What about the short term here? This just launched. Uh, we're talking hours after it went live Yeah. Uh, here while we we're recording the show. Um, what's the near term? How, how are you going to build this out into a robust product? How are you? Uh, you know, how is it going to be funded and uh, kept afloat until, uh, you know, it's able to do all these things that you're talking about. Um, I mean, not that, it, you know, I, I only spend a very small amount of time with it of course. Uh, at this well. point. Um, but so I don't know the full capabilities, but, uh, you know, obviously there's a, we, when we talked earlier, there's a continuous process here. What, what's the short term vision for this? Well, I didn't want to launch it or, or bring people into it as beta testers until there was truly a data audit workflow and a, a way to use their help to improve the model. That all exists and we have plenty of compute. We have a plan to get more compute if it scales. But, you know, we, I think realistically here, I, I know I've never taken investment. I know people don't, they're not rushing in to invest with me. So I have a plan for it to work 
on its own with the people who use it right now and as an accessory application with our already existing businesses, of which there are a number now. So it will already exist on my sites, and I have made deals with certain partners in the gun industry to already begin to use it in a kind of experimental testing fashion. So as far as I'm concerned, this announcement is it's its debut in our space. It it exists. The team is small. I don't really need investment to keep it going. It's here with us now. If we can improve it, if it's really good, you'll just see that it it's in our space. Or it's so good, you'll never know that it's powering your experience like on Gunbroker or something. You know, who knows? But uh, as we see all this, every day we see AI announcements from different companies and stuff. Uh, it won't just be my company in the end. There will be a lot of AI companies trying to cater to our space, I hope. I would just like to be one of the first. Yeah, and certainly you are one of the first. I don't believe there's any other out there at this point with this specialization in mind. Um, but, uh, you know, you face the same sort of challenges that I think the rest of the AI industry faces. And at least uh, to me, as a, you know, a user, uh, somebody who's not in the industry, but uh, has, has used AI products and keeps up with reporting on it, uh, the, the biggest obstacle seems to be uh, you know, accuracy with these, with what's produced by the model. Cause you know, the, a large language model, right. For anybody who doesn't understand, and this is going to be super simplified. It's almost like um, a very advanced game of ad lib or uh, where you're the, the computer is sort of filling in words based on the previous words uh, with this advanced training that it's had on uh, a, a boatload of data to try and get a, to, a sentence that makes sense in response to what it's been asked, but it's not necessarily, and it's pretty good at that now, you know, it's, it's giving you good conversational responses. Uh, and, and Gat GPT did that when I talked to it, but uh, it's not as good at fact-checking those responses. That's and, right. and I, and you, you know, I saw this with uh, the suppressors. When I asked the, the example question about suppressors. It gave me suppressors that aren't the companies that don't actually make, Right. Sup you know, sound suppressors, right. stuff like that, where you're getting these factual uh, inaccuracies that are seem to be common in ChatGPT as well and other AI products. So, how what's your plan to address that issue? Some of that, some of that would be a trade secret at this point, but I, I can say some simple things. Um, our our data audit, and so we're not using like human reinforcement in the sense that that's truly meant, but we are building really important. Uh, retrieval databases. So some of our answers retrieval where we benefit in, in the gun sense, strictly from the fact that search already makes it hard for us to do things. So I don't actually have to have the base model understand the right answer. I just need the base model to understand your, your query, your prompt. And then I actually just perform a retrieval function, which is like a, an advanced search. And I give you the right answer in a different. So you're having a search experience through a, through an agent. You know, but the agent didn't, you know, he didn't hallucinate the wrong answer. He just delivered you the right result. So that's part of it. Uh, the other part, of it, I mean, you're right. Like I've never successfully used ChatGPT to this day. And I use GPT-4 in any literary question. I go like, oh, you know, where, where's the first use of, you know, Thumos and Aristotle's politics? It's like, oh, go here. You know, it's never there. Or, you know, where did, where did John Adams talk about this and like his defense of the Constitution? Like, oh, go to this chapter. It's never there. You know, it's just always making things up. That's always going to be a problem, I think, until there's, different uh, techniques. Uh, and of course, we're always taking advantage of those techniques. Like Xlama 2 has been out for only two weeks. Well, we have it. Uh, 
Facebook's Llama 3 is coming out soon. Well, we'll have it, right? Like all, all we're already building on is just a large body of Microsoft's research, you know, open source versions of Facebook and other large data sets. So we're just using the best, fastest techniques right now and delivering what's already an effective experience for our industry because our industry has been ghettoized the last 10 years by search anyway. So uh, I'm just building a, a tool like, let's say you want to search DefCAD for the right model based on the right metadata parameters. Okay, ChatGPT is just another way to help you find that model. And, um, you know, I don't have to be embarrassed about that because, like, the bar is so low already in our space. Hmm. Okay. And because, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be the the thing that ultimately decides how far AI can go in the near future. Is like, if it keeps hallucinating facts, uh, it's not going to make a very good search engine, right? Because it'll just give you things that are wrong. But you right can there. fix that. And then, therefore, this all this like uh, pearl clutching about like, oh my God, it's a super intelligence that'll take over. No, number one, you're making it retarded every day. Like you're killing its sense of humor and its pattern recognition. You major players, when I'm thinking of Sam Altman, Anthropic and stuff, it's never gonna do anything other than what the government says it should do, it sounds like, in the major corporate space. And then, you know, I just, therefore, I, I just don't believe that this is really the kind of super weapon of you know, the Skynet of the future. I just do not believe that that's possible. It is, like you said, uh, a way of simulating a human experience with a predictive, like you, you call the fill in the blank, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's just, you're, you're training on core and we've, we've trained it on big gun text data sets and seen its competency go down, you know, like there's a lot of mysteries in doing this stuff. So we're staying humble. I'm not over promising anything. I've seen where it's good and where it helps me and where it helps a customer experience or where it helps compliance. And I will use it there, but you just have to understand what you're working with. And I hope with our AI, uh, let's say our beta testers, and people who come in and want to help us as the overall industry and LLMs get better, then, you know, we'll get better too. Okay. Now this is not the only news that defense distributed and you've been involved with uh, just over the last week here. You also received a, an injunction from uh, the court in the Vanderstock case that allows you to uh, continue to sell 80% lowers. Is that right? Not just lowers, man. I can, the, the whole rule does not apply. So any any argument that ATF has under the new rule about what is a gun or what is a kit for a gun or a kit for a receiver, none of that applies to 80% arms or defense distributed. Strong medicine. And yeah, and, <laughs> and that comes even after the Supreme Court intervened to issue an emergency uh, stay for the initial ruling. How does that interact? It's because of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court's order you know, it was written without an opinion. Uh oh. But in, in the order, we see that it says only as to the, uh, the vacator. Okay. Well, there's a lot in that, in Judge O'Connor's, uh, final, final judgment that was not just vacator. You know, it was, you gave us permanent injunctions and all this stuff. So we legitimately had a procedural question. We legitimately had a question as to whether the Supreme Court had even spoken as to our permanent injunctions. So we go back to Judge O'Connor and we say, Hey, okay, fine, your vacator and other things might be struck down, but we think we still have an injunction. What do you think? And he says, here's 42 pages for why you're right, and I have the power to give you an injunction. And even though the Supreme Court has stayed the case, you will have an injunction for the length of that stay. Quite a, quite an opinion he delivered. And uh, I know the ATF's upset because they told us this morning they'll, they're filing an emergency appeal in like uh, an hour. Yeah, so there's some, some additional breaking news there as well. So it sounds like essentially the Supreme Court stayed the part of the 
opinion, the initial opinion that vacated the rule, that got rid of the rule altogether, but not the injunction against the rule. That's still in place is essentially where things stand right now. I think that's how we're to understand things right now. Okay. Now, maybe ATF so, gets a good panel at the fifth, you know, a good motions panel today at the fifth. I don't know. Maybe yeah, it's all change. I, I think they got a road to hoe, man. Yeah. And, and yeah. you just, I don't know if you saw the oral arguments uh, on September 6th or 7th on Vanderstock, but oh my God, they got blown away. DOJ got completely embarrassed and shamed in that thing. Um, so it's the, the overall case is not going very well for DOJ. Where do you think it all ends up? Do you think the Supreme Court's going to take it up on the merits? Um, Ten days ago, I said no way. But clearly there's an interest. Clearly they're bowing to some public pressure. I can't believe that there's five people on that court who would give ATF the rule, but um, I'm starting to doubt it. You know. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, it's definitely uh, that move of issuing the, the stay. You could read it a number of different ways, right? You could read it as respecting procedure or maybe as five people on the court really do have a problem yeah. with the, the lower ruling on the merits. And I, I guess it's, we can't know. I hope it's just Roberts being his normal. He'll bend over backwards to give liberals every show of good faith, you know, but I, I don't think the, the Fifth Circuit opinion will probably be so strong <laughs> that the Supreme Court would have to do a lot of damage in, in you know, fixing what they do. So I think the Fifth understands the risk as well. And we've got some we've got some killer conservatives on that on that panel. So uh, probably the Fifth makes it so strong that the Supreme Court has to just ignore. Hmm. OK, well, uh, so if people want to join GAT GPT, they want to be a beta tester. How can they do that? Uh, people can go to GATGPT.com. They can go to any of our defense distributed sites. There's usually banners up that can send you there. Uh, there's a there's an invite button and we're just bringing people in kind of on a slow rolling basis. So you, you pay five dollars and I don't know, you get an email. All right. Wonderful. Well, uh, you know, I'm sure there will. Do you know how many people have signed up so far? Are you able to say that? Uh, yeah, like four thousand. It's quite a quite a few signups. Um, yeah, in just a couple hours, right? Uh, yeah, we launched last night. I, I, I like it. It's good. And um, I'm trying to be fair and, and give people their due. But, you know, we would we have a preference for people who have knowledge in our industry. You know, we want we want uh, educated auditors to work with the model because the model does need improvement. The model needs to talk to reliable raters. So we're mm -hmm. looking for people to help us build and develop right now. It's not a it's not just a toy. Okay. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on the show and telling us about the new AI model and as, as well as giving us an update on the court case. Thank you. And uh, we'll have to have you back on again, maybe after the next ruling or <laughs> maybe if you get sued over uh, Gat GPT or whatever might come. I'll be so sad. Uh, but yeah, no, thank you, brother. And uh, it's good to All see right. you again. Appreciate it. We're going to head over to the news update now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer, <coughs> excuse me, Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. Uh, how are we doing this week, Steve? Yeah, I was say, off to, to a, a, off to a crack and start. To the news update, yeah. Um, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Doing pretty good, aside from, obviously, the, the little bit of hoarseness as we get started yes. here. <laughs> well, that always happens, I find, whenever you get a record. That's that's always when something comes up in your, in your chest and makes you cough or or whatever it's 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 just the curse of the camera really yeah never fails but uh you got any good plans this weekend 
watching college football. CU's got its uh, first big test. They're playing Oregon this weekend, so they're finally playing uh, a team ranked higher than they are. I guess TCU in the opening kind of counts, but it's still be a big test to see if this is all hype or if this team's the real deal with uh, Deion Sanders as the coach. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, big deal in Colorado right now. Absolutely. What about you? Uh, I'll actually be at the Gun Rights Policy Conference, the, the Second Amendment oh, that's Foundation. Right. And the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms is putting on in Phoenix. I'll be speaking on Saturday, so before this actually goes to air, uh, before even the members get access. But, yeah, so hopefully I'm looking forward to seeing people, maybe some of the some members while I'm out there. Usually there's a, a bunch of members at that conference, so... Um, Looking forward to that and giving a little speech. Um, uh, you know, always kind of, I kind of wing those just for anybody uh, who wants a peek behind the curtain on how that, that actually goes. But um, usually they're pretty well received. So uh, yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be, I think it'll be an enjoyable experience and, and I think hopefully people will get something out of it, but um, yeah, that, so I'm, uh, in Phoenix this weekend for that. And then I have a, there's like a Google conference next weekend in Phoenix. Uh, Newsgeist, I think it's called. Um, and I'm going to that as well. And that'll be interesting too. I think it's first time at, at that event. I think it's the fir first time they've done it since the pandemic. So um, it's like a small conference for news reporters and people who run publications and stuff. So I don't know what that one's going to be like. I don't know what to expect, but I do know that I have to go to Phoenix two weekends in a row, which I back to back weekends. Like, yeah. I mean, I enjoy Phoenix and all, and I have some friends, the active self-protection guys, most of them are in the Phoenix area. So that'll be nice to see them. Uh, but yeah, flying to Phoenix, I mean, it's three hours behind right now. You know, they, they have their whole special, we are, we have our own time zone thing going on, but right now it's three hours. Well, just like Pacific time. So it's, you kind of waste your entire day flying there it's also like a six hour flight uh five five or six hours so get to do that two weekends in a row that should be fun yeah and it's probably still a hundred plus degrees out there too you can always count on yes. that from phoenix <laughs> that as well so uh but i'm you know it'll be worth it i think um yeah, but yeah the first first thing i wanted to just talk about real quick is the interview we just did cody wilson right um from defense distributed and you know, I just find it kind of fascinating that he has remained this uh, sort of spokesperson or, or at least the face of this section of uh, Second Amendment advocacy. You know, this, this whole ghost gun sort of space, the homemade firearm space, 3D printed guns. I mean, there's a lot of, to be fair, there, there are plenty of people who don't like him as the face um, because of his background, right? Um, he's, he, you know, he was convicted of or he pled guilty to uh, injuring a minor over an incident where he paid a 16 year old girl for sex and he was sentenced to probation and required to register as a sex offender. And obviously when your work is in that space uh, on the sort of edges of gun rights advocacy, places that most Americans are probably already fairly uncomfortable with, uh, even if a lot of Second Amendment supporters agree with it, um, you know, to have that background on top of it, to have that that sort of criminal history, it's pretty interesting that he's remained 
person that is most associated with that, that, that is still out there. You know, he still works for the Second Amendment Foundation and uh, defense distributed in legal fights. He's still the, really the main person in those legal fights. There are a couple other companies like Polymer 80 and, and uh, a couple others who are involved too, but not to the breadth that Cody Wilson has been and he's and has remained ever since that uh, that you know that that crime was several years ago we've talked about it on the podcast before I asked him about it when he was on the last time and I didn't ask him this time maybe I should have um to be fair to him I mean honestly because if we're gonna I, I feel like it has to be talked about uh anytime he's involved in a story and it would be better to ask him directly even though it's not sort of uh implicated in what he's doing right now um but you know we mentioned in the story i've talked to him about it before on the show uh but it just uh, you know uh, it is a fascinating thing that he has remained this level of um prominence at this level of prominence on this issue even after that yeah and you know it's sort of complicated right because obviously like you said it, it's something that needs to be addressed needs to be talked about but yeah. when you're someone like a figure like Cody, who very clearly welcomes sort of the the media attention and the the political attention, he's the one that volunteers to be at the forefront of these lawsuits, partnering with gun yeah. rights groups, and yes. he's clearly very articulate in interviews, not not only with us but with major mainstream outlets that would traditionally be at the very least uncomfortable, perhaps, with both the work he's doing and his broader sort of techno anarchist philosophy right. uh, and he still goes out there and, and articulates his broader philosophy so i i think that's where sort of the 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 staying power comes from at least a, a good deal of it yeah i and i think that's very much true and, and he, you can tell too like I, i've known him for for years now he's very charming uh and 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 he has this coherent worldview which i think is another important aspect to it like He's fairly consistent in in the things that he uh, pushes and the the efforts that he undertakes, and they're also provocative at the same time, and intentionally so in a lot of cases. Like he he's certainly very media savvy in that sense, and he's looking to be the face of these things. Whereas a lot of the people in the space, including many of the people who don't like him, you know, there's plenty of other people who have even well surpassed him in terms of you know their their advancement of 3D printed guns, for instance, that, you know, Cody Wilson has became famous for me, for building and test firing the Liberator uh, back in like 2013, maybe a decade ago. Um, and then, you know, he was at the center of a fight with the Department of State over gun file sharing. And he's mainly focused on sort of that aspect. Since then, he's not as involved in 3D printing anymore. And there's a lot of people who have uh developed techniques way way beyond what the liberator was when and when that was around uh, or when that was first created you know a decade ago and but the thing is that a lot of those people don't necessarily want to be the face of it they do a lot of them want to be anonymous it kind of comes along with a lot of the political philosophy that they're they're pursuing with this the whole idea of uh you know ghost guns is that they're not traceable by the government um not necessarily f and, and you know for the people in the second amendment movement that's not because uh of the you know obviously criminals like them for that reason as well but there is sort of this legitimate political philosophy of that the government doesn't des deserve to know or need to know who owns firearms if they're law-abiding 
uh, people. And so, uh, you know, sort of fitting with that basic concept, a lot of these guys who are pushing the envelope on 3D printed guns and, and so forth are, are themselves anonymous and they're not seeking out media attention the way that, that Cody does. Um, and then also Cody just, yeah, like I said, he's media savvy. He knows, he knows what's going to draw headlines. Like this AI project is right at the center of this sort of zeitgeist. And he's, he's clever too. Like, you know, GAT GPT, chat GPT, that's going to be something that gets in headlines. It just is. Um, and I, you know, to me, it's like, that's why we, we cover him because he's still doing things that are newsworthy. He's still at the center of a lot of these fights. And, um, you know, that's our role is to, to cover them. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to, you know, mislead by omission or anything. I don't want to you know, feel like it's necessary. This is a part of his story. Uh, that's always going to be there, this, uh, you know, sex crime that he would plead guilty to. And so I don't want to have an episode of the podcast where he's on and then it doesn't go mentioned, even if we've mentioned it before, even if it's mentioned in the, the written piece. I don't want to feel like anyone is not aware that this happened, because uh, obviously the audience can get split between these things. They don't necessarily read every story or listen to every episode. So I, it's probably something I should have brought up to him in the actual interview it was it's one of those things where it's hard to like integrate this question where uh if i've already asked him it before and it doesn't directly relate to the story we're talking about but but i just feel like it's necessary to to mention this stuff right i mean it, it's part of what's it, it's part of why he's controversial for sure you know obviously it's probably a huge part of why he's controversial um and so and he has responses and and there's certainly uh, he, um, I've interviewed him about this topic specifically back when I was at the free beacon and he was, um, felt that he was misled and obviously prosecutors disagree with that point uh, on the age of, of the girl involved and, and he pled guilty to that crime. So, uh, you know, th these are just the facts of what happened. And I felt like they're something that's relevant to bring up and also to, to discuss like this fairly interesting that the sort of face of the ghost gun movement, if you will, is a registered or pled guilty to a sex crime and, and had to register as a sex offender. So that's, you know, not the greatest PR look for for an area of the movement that is already something I think most Americans are uncomfortable with. Certainly. Yeah. But but I mean that but, you know, like like we just laid out there, there's a number of reasons why it's why it is that way. And one of them is. He's effective at getting his message out for sure. Uh, and he's uh, uh, so, you know, we're going to continue to cover him as long as he does things that are newsworthy um, and we'll cover other people the same way, do our best to be fair to him and also especially to our audience and, and let everyone know the full details and full context of everything that's going on. So, I don't know. I just felt like we owed it to people listening to make sure that that was uh, a part of this episode. But regardless, we also have a number of other pieces of news that came out this week. Uh, can you read through some of the, the headlines that were in the newsletter? Yeah. So some of the links from the newsletter, we got some follow-up reporting from Politico. Uh, this is sort of a, an add-on to what we already talked about last week, where 
Democratic senators in particular were starting to speak out and join the Republicans in their uh, backlash against the Department of Education's interpretation of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act that has uh, allegedly resulted in uh, cut funding for hunting and archery programs in schools. Um, so now you have a bunch of new Democratic senators speaking out. Martin Heinrich from New Mexico, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, Tim Kaine from Virginia, John Tester from Montana. Uh, so a lot of what you might call purplish blue state, blue leaning, but certainly purplish with at least an appreciation for hunting. Uh, it's, I think it's interesting you're starting to see a growing chorus of those folks speaking out. And Politico notes, which I think is shrewd, that a lot of these folks are up for re-election fairly shortly. So that's also probably playing a, a pretty big factor in this as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's actually kind of surprising this hasn't been fixed already. But I do kind of, to be fair to the Department of Education, sympathize with their position on this because the law that these kind of senators voted for uh, does appear to make it um, impossible for them to fund these sorts of programs because they're, they're not allowed to use their funding for anything that trains people in the use of dangerous weapons. Well, uh, as much as hunting and archery are uncontroversial uh, things generally in American society, um, they do involve dangerous weapons, obviously. Uh, and they're even there's even issues with like knives because the, the definition of dangerous weapon uh, has a spe specific carve out for a knife that's under two inches long, the pocket knife. And um, so that sort of implies that maybe some of the training involving kitchen knives might be. Uh, impossible to fund too. So they, it really feels like they need to do, have legislative fix and they might, you know, that was one of the letters that they sent last time around was, was to the, uh, the Senate. Um, I think it was the appropriations committee where they want to insert some language to fix this. And they probably are going to have to do that, but we also are on the verge of potentially a government shutdown. So it might take a little while before they get to that point. As I say, they're a little, a little distracted at the moment. Um, the next link we've got uh, comes from our friend Cam Edwards over at Bearing Arms, and he's reporting on the rough start that New York's background checks for ammo sales is undertaken. So that officially took effect last week, and he quotes from a number of different FFLs and prospective ammo buyers talking about massive delays, some as long as eight hours just to get their background checks processed for, for ammunition sales. So it's been a little bit of a headache rolling this thing out, it looks like, in, in New York State. Yeah, I think this is one of those situations where I don't think you can use NICS, if I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah, the New York right? State Police handles this. Yeah, yeah. so they have to create their own state background check system. And yeah, the, just like in California, they've had a lot of problems doing that and running it effectively. And um, and it's also kind of a obviously redundant thing because to buy a new gun or buy a, a gun from any dealer, and I guess in New York they have universal background check. So to buy any gun legally, you have to go through a background check anyway. So um, it's a kind of redundant thing to also force everybody who has a gun to go through a background check to buy the ammo. But but that's where these states have gone and it hasn't worked out super well so far. Yeah. And then the final link we'll talk about today comes from GV Wire, uh, doing some interesting reporting uh, from local, uh, local law enforcement officials in Fresno, California. Basically rebutting something that the California Attorney General Rob Bonta was hinting at, that the reason that they're passing all these new Bruin response bills and concealed, concealed carry restrictions is to ensure that you know concealed carry holders are not there committing crimes. And this, uh, at least the sheriff, came out and spoke out to 
provide some color on the fact that concealed carry holders just haven't been responsible for hardly any crime. You know, the headline quotes a, a statistic that the sheriff's office provided that one in 31 million concealed carry po- uh, permit holders committed a, a crime involving a firearm in the last five years. So it's always interesting to see new statistics on that, on this common talking point from gun rights folks, at least. Yeah. I mean, this is a, you know, like you said, it's a fairly common point because all the other crime statistics we've seen released in places like Texas and Florida, um, show the same basic concept, which is that people who have concealed carry permits commit crimes at very low rates compared to the general population, oftentimes even compared to uh, police officers, or at least they're in the same realm as police officers. Um, And, you know, it's not necessarily very surprising, right? Because people who obtain concealed carry permits are subjecting themselves to background check and the training requirement to get that permit. So they're kind of self-selected uh, law-abiding people to a certain degree. Cause you know, if you, if you can't pass the background check and you're not willing to obtain the, the uh, training that's required, uh, you're probably not going to, you know, you're, you're probably somebody who's more likely to commit a crime. But if you do are willing to go through that process, it's, it's much less likely that you're going to be somebody who's, uh, going to commit a gun crime. So, uh, but it, you know, it is good to have more data points like this for, uh, so people can understand that. Um, and then, yeah, what, what do we have from the reload this week? Yeah. So we uh, have a new story out about the Biden administration officially launching the first ever executive office of gun violence prevention. Uh, this is a huge win for gun control advocates who have been calling for this for years now, ever since Biden took office actually. Um, so, Definitely a big move. Uh, remains to be seen just how broad this office is going to act in its duties. Uh, so far, they've only sort of vaguely talked about, you know, expanding and implementing the executive actions he's taken thus far and exi- uh, enacting and expanding the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, various provisions in that law. Uh, but it's staffed with longtime gun control supporters. So that's probably going to draw a little bit of fire from gun rights uh, advocates. Yeah, I think we might disagree slightly on this one, um, just in the terms of how big of a win it is. I mean, certainly it is significant because it's it's the first time you've seen an office like this created by any president. Um, and it reports to the vice president. And, um, you know, it, it's it's sort of the institutionalization of the gun control movement within the administration. Uh, so I don't want to say it's, you know, it's nothing. Right. And it is something that they've been asking for. But it's also not, they, some of them wanted a cabinet, cabinet level position. They wanted it to be like, they wanted to have a secretary of gun violence yeah. protection. Uh, and that that didn't happen. Um, and it doesn't, you know, I was on the press call for this uh, before it went live, uh, you know, before the announcement went live. And now they're going to, on. we're filming on Friday, they're going to do a whole Rose Garden ceremony for this as well with the president. But uh, they had a press call on Thursday and, you know, I just didn't hear much in there about uh, what they're actually going to accomplish with this. You know, they, they sort of compared it to FEMA in a certain sense, with, but uh, for gun violence, you know, crisis or gun violence emergencies, that there would be uh, just greater coordination from the White House. And it is a political win in the sense that, you know, you've got 
several people from the gun co- gun control movement who are now going to be White House officials and not just regular White House officials focused on general tasks, but specifically on gun control and trying to advocate for new gun control laws and uh, trying to look at how to implement new rules, perhaps. Um, but I don't know. It, it all feels a bit more symbolic than anything to me. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I guess I should caveat because yeah. I, I agree because, you know, the state level analogs to this, my, my home state, Colorado, has one it sort of picked up steam in the last couple of years. I think California mm-hmm. and New York have them as well. I mentioned in the piece. Yeah. And those are all the same thing. It's fairly symbolic. It's mostly just promoting the existing gun control laws in the state. But I should caveat, the big win is, is to more your point, it's an institutionalization of the gun okay. control movement within a presidential administration. So that's a, I mean, yeah. that's a pretty big step. It'd be like if Donald Trump right. appointed Wayne LaPierre to a, an office in his exec, that, that would be big news, I think, in, in the mainstream that's press. True. So. Yeah. yeah, in that sense, it is pretty big. Uh, you know, in a, in a sort of practical effect, I don't know how much it's going to matter. Yeah, but I think a, that's right. In a, in a political symbolic way, yeah, it is much. It's it's more significant there. Um, so maybe we don't disagree too much. But, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, because you know, and it's not exactly what they want. It, it is what they wanted, um, and he did wait to do this. And yeah, it you know it kind of signals perhaps that he's running out of. Uh, I think you wrote this in your piece that he's, he's kind of running out of things he can do. So. He's doing this thing now. Right. You know, he's done. He did what three rules? Two of them already been ruled unconstitutional by the courts, although they are still technically in effect uh, as we wait for further, you know, appeals to process. But uh, they, it's not looking good for those. And then uh, he's got the third one on the way with, um, you know, trying to force people to get more people to get uh, federal firearms licenses to deal guns. But uh, yeah, how much more he can do on a practical level is is a big question, and I don't know that this will do anything in that in that regard. But it, yeah, it, it does have that symbolic and political effect of trying to like this is something the gun control groups wanted. The election is still a little ways away. I maybe you should have waited a little longer to do this. I don't know, but sure. uh, to have a, a more satisfying political um pay off to it but but it does you know it is something for sure yeah but uh speaking of big moves from gun groups we have uh some exclusive reporting from you this week uh on the other side of the equation from the gun rights side the uscca is launching a new 501c4 to get more involved in gun rights advocacy if you want to tell us a little bit about your your reporting yeah so we had an exclusive interview with the the head of this new action fund that they're launching. You know, USCCA launched a super PAC two years ago uh, that we we wrote about at the time, and they've um, they've done some political advocacy with that, and and now they're kind of starting to fill out the portfolio of groups. Right, when you look at major uh, advocacy groups that exist out there, whether it's in the gun space or, or otherwise, they tend to be made up of a bunch of uh, legal entities uh, because. There are different things that different entities can do. So a super PAC can raise unlimited and spend unlimited amounts of money from anyone, but they have to disclose their donors and they have to, uh, they can't coordinate with campaigns in any way, right? So uh, you see a lot of these, that, that's sort of the, the hot topic in political spending is, is super PACs because they can spend so much money. 
but they uh, they can't coordinate with a can a candidate that they support or whatever. Uh, at least that's how the law works. And so you still have PACs can be useful in that sense that they can coordinate more. And you you have um, same thing for 501c4s, although 501c4s, which is what this new group is from USCCA, they don't have to disclose their donors. That's what, you know, the NRA, the membership organization, the NRA is a, is a C4. So that's why you, you don't know who's in, who are NRA members. Like they, they will tell you that they might give you, or at least they'll usually give you numbers and they might tell you specific members who've agreed to be public, but they don't have to tell you everybody who's an NRA member. And it's the same thing with this new USCCA group. So that's one advantage of it. They can also um, endorse candidates and spend money on them, but they can't, um, it can't be the main focus of the organization though. Uh, that's another thing. So um, there's, that's another limitation. And so then you have 501c3s where the donations are tax deductible, but they can't necessarily um, get as politically involved as the other groups. And so usually you'll have major organizations like the NRA or Everytown, Giffords, or, you know, any any large political group you can think of is usually organized into a bunch of uh, legal entities. So this is sort of the USCCA getting to that point or starting to ramp up in that way. And they're going to provide you know, activist training, they're going to take a, a little bit of a different approach, it seems, from some of the other gun groups in that their main focus appears to be on recruiting new gun owners from the last, you know, several years and trying to expand the uh, inclusion of these new demographics into the gun rights movement as well, at, you know, at a higher rate than previously. And they're going to be less partisan then some of the other groups uh, that seem to be a part of the this mission uh, statement that they've put out in this interview that I did with the the head of this new group. So it, it and honestly, to me, the main thing that makes this all interesting. I mean, that's an interesting approach. It's a bit different from you get a lot of sort of hyper <laughs> hyper partisanship and and uh, you know red meat bomb throwing stuff in the second amendment space from from second amendment groups these days but so that's that's definitely unique but also the uscca as the nra has lost you know over a million members um you need to look at groups that have the potential to replicate that size and i think uscca is one of the few because they have dues paying members they have over eight hundred thousand of them now that's still not anywhere near what the NRA is even today, but there's that's 800,000 people who pay the USCCA to be members. Now, that, there's a caveat there too, in that the USCCA and people are mainly members of that because it provides concealed carry insurance to them. And and the instead of being orga organized around a nonprofit, like most other um, political groups, USCCA is organized organized around a, a for-profit company called Delta Defense that provides that that insurance product, whatever you want to call it. And uh, so I don't know. It's definitely an interesting thing, and and I think the the scale of the organization being a nationwide organization with a lot of people who pay them money to be members that gets closer to what the NRA has traditionally been than any of these other Second Amendment groups that exist. 
Yeah, that's what stood out to me in your reporting is it's for the first time seeing a sizable gun rights group get into the more of the political side where, the, you know, you've seen a lot of gun rights groups do a lot of great work doing litigation and and, yeah. and sort of what the NRA used to do on in the legal front. But really, no one has even come close to what the NRA did in the political realm. And it's interesting to see other right. other big groups jump in that space. So that is, I think, the most fascinating part of that story. Exactly. That's that's what I think makes this potentially a very big deal. Uh, maybe not in this extreme short term, but right. in the long term, if they develop this properly and they continue to grow at the pace they've been growing as an organization, um, yeah, they have the potential to be much larger and more influential than uh, than they have been to this point. So uh, what's our last story, though? We got uh, it was a ruling out of the Tenth Circuit that was pretty significant, right? Yeah. So this is the third federal appeals court ruling that I'm aware of that since Bruin has dealt with whether or not nonviolent felons can lose their gun rights forever, whether that's constitutional. And in this case, the three judge panel on the 10th circuit said that that is a okay because they, they drew very heavily on uh, what's known as dicta, which is, you know, writing legal writing from an opinion. That's not the, the core holding of the case, but uh, where justice Scalia articulated that, you know, we're not casting doubt on quote unquote, longstanding prohibitions, which included uh, prohibiting felons from owning guns. And so the three-judge panel said, hey, we're not going to get into a, a difference between nonviolent and violent. We're not even going to get really into a, a formal analysis under the Bruin test. We're just going to say yep. the Supreme Court made, you know, hinted at least that they're not calling this into question, so we aren't either. And therefore, this nonviolent felon uh, can constitutionally be deprived of her gun rights for life. Yeah, and uh, we're seeing a circuit split develop, right? Because that goes against what the Third Circuit ruled in a uh, very similar case. Both of these cases were about a very small amount of money, uh, uh, you know, fraud being committed with a very small amount of money, essentially. Uh, the, the Third Circuit case was welfare fraud, basically a food stamp fraud, where the person had lied about how much money they made in order to qualify for food stamps. And then this case in the Tenth Circuit was about a woman who was homeless who wrote a bad check for less than $500, uh, which kind of, you know, also gives you maybe some reservations about our criminal justice system generally as to why these people were given felonies for these things. But uh, regardless, uh, you know, neither one went to prison either. You know, these were right. all probation based offenses, but the way that the law works, you don't have to actually go to prison to be a, uh, a felon under the law. You just have to have been convicted of something that's punishable by more than a year in prison. In most circumstances, there's some, some small caveats around you can get your rights restored in rare cases. But regardless, obviously, those two circuits uh, came down on very different ends of this question. Yeah. And the Eighth Circuit as well came down similarly to the Tenth Circuit uh, about a month ago. But it was interesting. That was an en banc ruling. There was a pretty hefty dissent from that ruling where a bunch of justices said, I'm looking at the Bruin test and I don't see how this squares with the Bruin test. So clearly, even in cases where they're coming down definitively, there's a lot of uncertainty in in this legal space about you know how nonviolent felons work under this test and whether that comports with the historical tradition of disarming dangerous folks or or not dangerous folks, and so to right. me that just means that I think inevitably the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on this question one way or another, whether that's Absolutely. by taking one of these cases or perhaps in the upcoming Rahimi case on the d domestic violence restraining order ban, whether they just address or articulate uh, a reading of Bruin to deal with these types of folks of who can be prohibited. 
I, I think yeah, no matter maybe a what, dangerousness standard or something like that. Perhaps, we'll, right, we'll right. I think they just can't avoid it at this point because you're just no. seeing all these splits. Yeah, they're going to definitely have to address it sooner rather than later. Maybe it'll be a Rahimi. Maybe they'll have to take up range or or the Tenth Circuit case or what have you uh, instead. But we will see. And and people can read more about that exact line of thought in your members piece, which is going to be out at the same time as this uh, this recording for our Reload members. Uh, and if you would like to become a Reload member so you can read that piece or get this episode a day early, like all episodes of the podcast, as well as the opportunity to appear on the show, uh, you can head over to reload.com and check out our membership options today. That is how we fund our reporting, is how we keep the lights on here. We uh, is 100% of our revenue comes from our members and uh, makes us beholden to our members, our readership, our audience, not to uh, corporate owners or what have you. Um, so make sure that you head on over and consider supporting us that way today. That is the best way you can do it. If you are not uh, at the point where you want to buy a membership though, you can of course support us by liking and sharing this podcast, giving us a good rating, a good five-star rating that always uh, helps increase our reach so other people can be exposed to this sort of reporting. And uh, you can, of course, let your friends and family know about what we're doing here, too. Anyone you think might be interested in a sober, serious approach to firearms reporting and analysis. That's all we've got for this week. We will see you guys again real soon.